This recording is from Fintech Nexus USA, formerly known as Line of Fintech USA, held at the Javits Center in New York City on May 25th to 26, 2022. It's from the track Fintech in 2027, sponsored by MasterCard and is titled Real Estate in 2022 and Beyond, Making Alternative Investments More Accessible. Speaking on the session is David Vincent from Cadre with moderator Louisa Beltran from Barron's. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for coming today. I know we're close to lunchtime, so thank you again for sitting here uh, patiently. So I'd like to introduce my panelist, David Vincent. He's Director of Investments, Investment Products at Cadre. Um, so Dave, thank you so much for being here. And if you could just tell us, what is Cadre? Uh, sure. And, and, you know, just to point out, I, I realize we are holding you back from food, so we'll try to be concise up here. Um, so uh, Cadre is a real estate investment firm, you know, first and foremost. We were built with the idea that you can use data science, technology, modern techniques, and analytics to create a better real estate investment firm, but at the same time also create broader access. Historically, real estate has been, you know, primarily the purview of large institutional investors, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, and I'm talking, you know, private commercial real estate. So owning apartment buildings and uh, hotels and office buildings. And so we wanted to do a couple things. One, build a team that is as good or better than anyone else out there from the investment underwriting diligence perspective. We have an excellent pipeline of deals. Um, you know, all of that I think is as good as anyone else in the traditional investment world. But using technology to enable them to be faster and smarter in everything that they do, while also creating broader access to individual investors who never really had access to this asset class before. So when you say individual investors, do, do they have to be accredited? Currently, yes. And what's the minimum? So we've brought our minimums. We keep working on bringing our minimums down as low as we can. Currently, it's uh, $25,000. And we're working on blowing through that and bringing it down much lower. And so you invest in commercial. So that's like office buildings, malls? We, we do not do malls, but we, we could. So our mandate is really anything that's commercial throughout the U.S., right? So it's a, it's a very broad mandate, um, you know, anything, anything from ground-up development to fully stabilized core assets. Generally, if you look at the deals that we've done, it's a little over 40 deals. Uh, more than half, I think, have been multifamily apartments. There's been strong secular tailwinds there that I think are going to continue. Um, and most of it's been in the value-add space. So buying an older building, fixing it up, creating value, getting the cash flow, and then selling it for a profit. But we have done some hotels, some industrial, some office, um, and some life science as well. And so for an investor, say like me, uh, how long would be my hold period? And do I get a choice of where I invest or do I just invest in the fund? Yeah. So, you know, uh, let's talk about the hold period first. You know, Commercial real estate is historically one of the least liquid asset classes, which has also been a challenge for individual investors. So, you know, I always advise people, if you're thinking about investing in commercial real estate, regardless of whether it's with us or with someone else or doing it on your own, you should anticipate a long hold period. If you plan on holding it for a year, you're better off just not wasting your time. Uh, now, our deals typically are anywhere from three years for more kind of ground-up development. You know, we're, we're getting the raw land, building something, and then we sell it off pretty early. 
sometimes upwards of 10 years. So it really depends on the nature of the deal. But we've also created something to really facilitate greater liquidity options for investors. We understand that especially with individuals, life happens, life events come up all the time and you need to reallocate your portfolio and you're stuck with something that maybe you can't sell. So we've created a secondary market where on a quarterly basis, we enable and facilitate LPs to sell or swap essentially their shares to other LPs in our network, creating liquidity where there otherwise was none. Now, whether or not you're picking and choosing, so our options are uh, historically, it's been primarily individual deals that we offer syndication on. What One of the things that makes us different that I think a lot of people overlook, every deal we buy, we buy on our balance sheet before we syndicate it out to our network of investors. We own these assets. Even if you come in six months later, you're coming in at the same cost basis that we bought the asset for. It's critical because it's skin in the game and alignment of interest. We're not going to sell anything or offer anything to our network that we're not comfortable owning ourselves. So we have individual deals. Right now, I think we might have six or seven uh, on our network, on our platform. So if you log in today, create an account, you'll see a hotel deal. You'll see a ground-up development that we just launched. I'm actually really excited in Charlotte. A couple value-add multifamily deals. A bunch of different types of deals in different geographies at different stages of development or risk profile, but also different time horizons. And we also have a fund. We just closed our flagship fund. Thrilled about it. We raised a little north of $200 million. Uh, it's a diversified pool of assets. Uh, by the time we had our final close, assets were already up about 49%. Uh, so in, investors coming in at the end got marked up right away, and they were thrilled with that. We're working on our next fund right now, so stay tuned if you're interested in kind of set it and forget it, easy access, instant diversification. That'll be out in the platform before you know it. So fund one was $200 million? Uh, it was about 230 I believe, yeah. And fund two, do you guys have a target for that? We don't have a target. Uh, we're trying to figure out exactly how we want to structure it right now. We want to create greater access, um, greater um, you know, ability for individual investors. But keep in mind, you know, especially with our fund one, some of our other investors, these were not just retail investors. You know, I should use air quotes there. Um, you know, we had a Harvard endowment. We have uh, the MacArthur Foundation, Ford Foundation, very large, well-respected, sophisticated investors are invested right alongside individual mom-and-pop investors on the same exact terms with the same liquidity, the same fees, the same level of access and transparency. That, in my eyes, is a game-changer for this asset class. Historically, individual investors had publicly traded REITs or retail products made by firms that might have done institutional, but it was a separate vehicle for individual investors. Here, you're investing side by side with some very sophisticated investors on the same exact terms. So do they, does Harvard get that same office building that we do? Yes. At the same terms? Yes. Interesting. Okay, that's great. Um, so can you tell us about how real estate performed during the pandemic and how is it doing now, considering that everybody's uh, mentioning the R word? <laughs> So before we get into, you know, I'm not going to predict anything on recessions or macroeconomic stuff, but, you know, I certainly have my opinions. Um, through the pandemic, this was, I think, fascinating. Uh, and it was an interesting study in human psychology at the, er, at the early onset, right? Go back to March of 2020. It was clear that the world was rapidly changing. No one knew what was going on, how bad things were going to get or what any of this meant. But everything was shutting down. 
if everything shuts down, you expect real estate to get its face ripped off, right? And so did we. I mean, you know, we had a very negative outlook on the sector. Uh, unfortunately, we were in real estate, and that's all we could do. So it's not like we're going to pivot. Um, but what you saw right away, if you look at the data, what did individual investors do? They're predominantly invested in publicly traded REITs that have high correlation to stocks, instant liquidity. They sold. They saw clouds on the horizon. They instantly sold, knee-jerk reaction. And so you have the opportunity with publicly traded REITs for this massive dispersion between the value of the underlying assets and the price that you're actually selling for. So REITs were down 40% in the matter of like weeks early on. The underlying real estate that those REITs held did not move very much. And I think this is what's really fascinating is if you look during the pandemic, you know, you have kind of a straight line. Some assets, listen, some office assets struggled. Early on, hotels struggled. But if you actually look at the cash flow that they paid, it remained steady. And you saw the line come down in some valuations, but then come back up. You've essentially, you're in the black ahead of the game right now had you stayed invested in real estate. Now, sector by sector, multifamily just kick butt, industrial kick butt, and actually had massive gains over this period. So people- what sectors did badly? Well, office and, and hospitality, and I would say hospitality early on, and it's a bifurcated market right now where places that are more drive-through uh, markets, places that have embedded demand functions. Um, so, you know, if you look at a college town, I mean, you know, University of Michigan is a great example where you have the largest football stadium in the country right there. You have tens of thousands of students, but you also have a high concentration of research facilities and, um, you know, office parks that are right there. So hotels in that market can do just fine as long as that local economy is still performing. Now, New York City, you had a trade, you know, just recently. Recently, right here in Midtown, those Sheridan sold for, I think, something about half the value that it last sold for like over a decade ago. You could look at that and say, hotels are dead. But at the same time in Nashville, there was, I think it was maybe a W hotel, but it just sold for just shy of a million dollars a door, which I believe is an absolute record price per room in Nashville's market. Nashville's a drive-through market. Nashville opened up during COVID much sooner than rest of this, you know, the country. And we can talk about what why. What do you mean by drive-through? So uh, less reliant on air travel, less reliant on business travel, less reliant on international travel. So New York City is the trifecta of bad, ne bad news as far as that goes in many cases. Um, but it's another great example, uh, we built a hotel in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, we're thrilled it was named as one of the best new hotels in the world recently. Um, and it's actually performing really well. Savannah is a drive-through market. It's a smaller market. It relies more on uh, tourism and it's more local tourism. So again, within like a radius that's drivable for people to do a weekend or things like that. So when your properties, are they spread all over the U.S.? Are there particular sectors or areas that you're... So, well, we're at a fintech conference, so we should talk about how we get there. But yeah, so, um, you know, we invest across the U.S., and we have a team of, it's about eight or nine people on our investment team right now, uh, and across all asset classes and across uh, everything from ground-up development to fully stabilized core, the first question you should ask when you hear that is, how on earth can eight people cover all of that? Well, arguably they can't. So we use technology in a lot of different ways. We can never cover it all here. But um, one is we're using our data science. 
We're sucking in millions and millions of data points on a monthly basis. So everything from publicly available stuff, the Census Bureau, uh, BLS, all of that, as well as local municipalities, we're looking at um, you know permits. How many permits were filed in a local market for new construction? What type of construction? We're looking at all of the transactions in all of these markets, and we're able to break it down so we can not. And we created our own price indices, so like our own S and P 500, if you will, for real estate by region, by asset type, as well as in the aggregate. And that's all fine and well, but we're using neural networks and advanced analytics and data science to actually forecast into the future. Every quarter, we're reevaluating prior forecasts and adjusting to hopefully make our models more accurate, but we're modeling eight quarters out every single quarter. I'm not going to sit here and tell you two years from now, I know what's going to happen. We don't. But if it can give us directionality, it's huge. So we reduce the country down to 15 markets, we call the uh, cadre 15, that we think have the highest likelihood of outperforming the broad U.S. Uh, in real estate uh, on a go-forward basis. Now, I can show you definitively that so far since we've been tracking this, it has significantly outperformed the U.S. So I think we've won there. We've, we, we, we've um, you know, created something that is telling as far as where the market is going. But it focuses our investment team. So our three lead acquisitions guys now have 15 markets to cover. Consider that as five markets each throughout the U.S. That's much more approachable and manageable. We can be laser focused, we can be disciplined, and we can do it at a much smaller scale than a lot of our other competitors. Are there any sectors that you refuse to focus, you refuse to invest in? <laughs> I would say anything that's investable to us, we would look at. We wouldn't necessarily invest unless, you know, retail is a great example. We could certainly invest in them all, but the, the fundamentals aren't there for us. Um, also, we look at our expertise. Every deal that we do, we partner with a sponsor, which is a fancy real estate term for the guy that brings the deal and we're the guys that bring the money, right? So we partner with people that have deep local market expertise, deep asset class expertise, or they're, you know, developers, right? They, they know how to build. Um, you know, we historically, we haven't done things like student housing. We haven't done single family homes. We haven't done, there's a lot of asset classes we haven't touched primarily because we don't think there's a value add we can bring to the table or it's too small or not liquid enough for us. Again, historically, we've done deals in the 50 to $150 million range. Right now, self-storage is getting a lot of buzz. It's just too small for us. You'd have, to, you'd have to have like a national portfolio to kind of hit that kind of scale. So I've been seeing, or I've been getting a lot of uh, pitches from real estate fintechs. There seems to be like a plethora of them right now. Why is that? Uh, well, I mean, I'd say, quite frankly, it's the same reason that we're here, is that there is this asset class that, for a whole host of reasons, it's one of the oldest, if you want to call it alternative asset classes, that's fine, but it's older than equities and bonds and everything else. I think it's the original traditional asset class. There's a reason why it makes sense for people's portfolios, right? It grows over time. It's much less volatile. Forget about public versus private. It has steady income that historically has outperformed dividends of stocks, outperformed the yield on bonds, low correlation to the rest of your portfolio. It's an excellent inflation hedge. I would argue probably the best inflation hedge. There are a million reasons. So you have this land rush now of companies coming up with innovative ideas and ways to bring this asset class to the masses. And I think it's wonderful. I don't think all of them are chasing the right ideas or dreams. And we'll see how the, the chips fall. Um, you know, I, I'm a big fan. I'm biased. I, I like what we're doing. Um, but I, it's because the value is there. It's a question of how you can bring that value to the market. 
So the markets have become very, very volatile. So you're saying that real estate is a great place to be? Well, I mean, I think so. And again, I'm talking my book. I'm biased. Uh, but look at the data. Uh, if you go back to the financial crisis, right, uh, we all know how crazy markets were back then. Um, you know, if you look at the NAREIT data, which is the aggregate data of real uh, assets held by real estate funds and firms, you can actually see that you had a bit of a dip in mark-to-market valuations, but then it came back and it was much smaller of a dip than any other asset class during that period, but incomes held steady. If you're owning an asset for 10 years, you care a lot less about the quarter-to-quarter marks in that asset. It's like buying a 30-year bond today that you're going to hold for 30 years. You care about that coupon you're getting. So if you're buying real estate as an income generator and diversifier for your portfolio, in the long term, you're going to go through these cycles and you're not even going to blink an eye. And quite frankly, you're going to see the benefits through those cycles. So we saw it during COVID. We saw it during the financial crisis. As far back as the data goes, consistently, private real estate holds up extraordinarily well, low volatility, low correlation to traditional markets, and very, very steady income. So I think we're running out of time, but I did want to open it up for questions. Anybody have a question? Okay, well, back to me. So, um, Can we talk about alternative assets in retirement accounts? Ooh, that's an interesting one. It's one that it's a battle I've been fighting internally for a long time. I'd love to see our investments uh, able to go into retirement accounts. I think we'll be there eventually. Uh, we're not there yet. What's holding it up? It's really a lot of regulations and logistics. So the 401k providers need to allow uh, illiquid assets or less liquid assets into there, and they need to set up the plumbing. So you're seeing, you know, I'm happy to give a shout out. There's a company called Alto IRA is a great one. And they are building a, well, they've built a platform where you can have all sorts of alternative investments in your self-directed IRA account because they've created the plumbing and they see the demand. I mean, they're, whether it's cryptocurrency or real estate or private credit and private equity, there are so many things that you haven't been able to do. Now, the flip side is rich people have been able to do it this whole time. So if you're rich enough, and we've seen these stories of these billionaires that put shares of you know, private equity deals into their IRA because they were able to pay for all of the work behind the scenes to do that, and they've gone up 10,000% and they have $100 million in IRA, I would argue that's not what IRAs are for. I'm not going to criticize someone for doing what they do. But it's been there for a small segment of the population, and we're seeing this shift where that's starting to open up. We're thrilled by it. I'm, I'm very excited about it. So does- so does that mean that real estate will one day be in people's IRAs? Absolutely, yes. And how- I will say right now it is, right, as publicly traded REITs. But bear in mind, you're not getting the vast majority of the benefits of true real estate exposure through public REITs. And public REITs represent less than 10% of the aggregate market. So you're getting a small piece of the market plus all of the downside of stocks and bonds without the upside of real estate. So can you tell us about Cadre's short-term view, like your plans for growth? Sure. Well, we are absolutely in rapid growth mode right now. We're hiring a lot of new people. We just launched a new website. So on a corporate side, we're doing a lot of great things. Uh, on the investment side, you know, multifamily, I think I, I hinted at this earlier, strong secular tailwinds. We have been just systematically underbuilding housing in this country for decades. The supply chain uh, disruptions that we're having right now are making it even worse. 
it is very difficult to build new housing. So that means, whether you like it or not, that owners of those assets are benefiting from it. You're seeing very strong rent growth in those markets in the Sun Belt, where people are migrating to. You don't need 10% of the people to leave New York for an increase in Austin or Phoenix of 10%. You need a much smaller percent of people to leave a big city for these smaller markets because it's a smaller base to grow significantly. So we're seeing those supply-demand dynamics being out of whack. Uh, we're seeing also uh, kind of a resurgence now of this pent-up demand for travel. So hotels are an area that we think is really interesting, as well as obviously industrial, I think is going to continue to do really well right now. Any sectors that you think will not do well? So, uh, well, we, we, we've historically stayed out of retail for a variety of reasons, but um, I'd say office is one where we're more wary of right now, um, more so because we don't know what the future holds. Um, you know, if you look at, there's a, a data that comes out on a weekly basis that looks at uh, key card swipes in New York City. Well, they, they do it cities all over the country, but New York City, we're still at about 40% of the occupancy of the foot traffic of workers and offices relative to pre-COVID. That is, I mean, a massive decline. Now, what does that mean? I know my company, we're building a new office space for us, right? So I think companies are going to have more square footage per employee, more perks, stuff like that. We're seeing Hudson Yards. I think Goldman Sachs paid a half a billion dollars just to have patio access. Not even the whole patio, just part of it. So the demand for these brand new top tier class A offices is through the roof. That's going to eventually hit these older assets, but you're going to have a lot of disruption and it's hard to figure out where to play there right now. And on that note, I'm told we're out of time. So I'd like to thank everybody for coming today and have a good lunch. And Dave, thank you so much for being a great panelist.